here's my bloody petunias. <laughs> the petunias. The petunias. Spandles of Strock. That's so... That's really not his accent. Like, I don't know what we've turned it into. It's not It's not really how we do it. Anyway. Take it away, my dulcet-toned Adonis. Yeah, that was a really smooth one. No hesitations, no stumbles. That was like, probably because I wasn't distracting you, I was reading my phone while you were doing it. <laughs> Normally it's my fault <laughs> that you screw it up. No, I was just quickly adding something to my list while you were talking. Um, oh, yeah, do you want a Petunia update? Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're still gone, obviously. Um, and a lot of people, I put up a photo of them on Instagram for those who didn't listen last week, Caleb's some of Caleb's precious petunias got just plucked right out of the planter box out in the front courtyard by a vandal, a vandal. Um, and, uh, yes, case remains unsolved. But Caleb told me because they got stolen and also our hose got stolen, um, which he insists is by some youths to make bongs. Um, <laughs> that um, he said that we couldn't have a Christmas wreath on the front gate because it'll just get stolen. But I was like, no, you know what? I have faith in mankind and I want Christmas stuff. So I went and got tinsel and a wreath and fairy lights, like Christmas lights, and I've decorated our whole front thing and it's nobody's stolen any of it. It remains untouched. Uh, about five days. Yeah. Decent slug. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I'll send it. Well, I don't know, because I shouldn't really take photos of the front of my building, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I suppose I can send them to you. Um, yeah, so remains untouched. So Caleb and my fight about, um, the, uh... Good of humanity is still up in the air. If we can make it to like Boxing Day with none of the stuff on the front fence that I've decorated being stolen, then I'm correct that people are inherently good. <laughs> Although a lot of people wrote on Instagram when I posted a photo of the two gaping holes where the petunias once were that they thought it could have been like birds or possums. But the holes, are, I need to show you a closer up photo. It's too perfectly scooped out for it to be an animal. Yes, keep posting your theories, but I still maintain a very drunk person from the pub across the road just walked by and thought that'll be nice and some like random girlfriend or wife woke up the next morning with two mounds of dirt and some squash flowers just on the kitchen bench <laughs> wondering <laughs> what it <a>, yeah <laughs> so that's what i'm assuming but anyway yeah that's the update of the petunias which i'm sure you are all dying to know dying to know <laughs> um shall we do some breaking news <gasps> oh i can't wait to tell you this first one Breaking news, breaking news, I got the scoop, see, x-ray, x-ray, read all about it, breaking news, it's coming down the wire. So, a new study, a new study, so it must be true, has found that people who believe in astrology are more narcissistic and less intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Sucker! <laughs> what say you, astrologer believer? <laughs> Jacob. Jacob William Stanley. I think you'll know by now that this is just the gist. 
and I don't know the metrics, nor do I know the name of the study, nor can I remember where I saw this. (laughs) In breaking news of just the gist, I bring you the headlines of things I sort of remember looking at during the week. Go for it. (laughs) Disseminate it like wildfire. Okay, next. And this one, I just found this really fascinating. Did you know that Oreos are vegan? Ah, see, it makes you kind of concerned what the white stuff in the middle is. I suppose, well, because it's, it can't be chocolate or cream and they're technically a chocolate cookie and cream biscuit. And it does, it does kind of prove that, like, a lot of people think to be vegan makes you a health nut, but... Vegan diets don't necessarily have to be healthy. I mean, sugar is of the earth and it can be very bad for you. See, what you really need to be on is a Jacob diet where you don't eat anything fun. So you're a vegan, but you don't have dairy or sugar or garlic or onion, which some people would argue are the only things that make vegan food edible. (laughs) Did you know... When Jacob comes to stay with me, I avoid cooking with garlic or onion for like two days before he gets there just because I know how sensitive he is to the smell. You are welcome. Yeah. But yeah, Oreos, vegan. There you go. Interesting. So I guess the kiddies listening now, if you want one and your parents say, no, that's not healthy, you can go, excusez-moi, it's vegan. (laughs) So, yes, it is. Um, oh, and another little bit of Caleb breaking news this week, and then I've just got a couple of, like, things I've watched that I want to talk about. For the first time, I think, since I've known him, Caleb has been on the forefront of something in pop culture. So there is this cat. Caleb's obsessed with cats, first of all, particularly our cat, Boo. He, they have a bizarre relationship. But there's, and Caleb just follows a lot of cats on Instagram and stuff. And there's this cat that he is obsessed with that he sends me pictures of day after day after day after day to the point where I'm like, I'm not opening anything else that you send me because it's wasting my precious time and my time is valuable. So stop. Um, But anyway, it's this cat called Stepan. And then last week, Britney Spears posted a photo of Stepan and now Stepan has become internationally worldwide famous. And Caleb was like, I was a fan of Stepan first. <laughs> Caleb's so, Caleb thought he was cool before everyone else. Caleb, is, Caleb called it Stepan. Leaning on the thing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Boo, that's why he likes him. <laughs> And I don't even know if Stepan is how you pronounce it because I'd never take, he sends me photos of it all the time. I'm just like, whatever, stop sending me photos of this cat. And then Brittany shared a photo of it and I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's not spelt Stepan. It's spelt like Stefan, but Caleb just calls him Stepan because he thinks it's funny. So anyway, (laughs) the point of the story is Caleb, for the first time in history, newer pop culture thing before me, finally showing his actual age, which since people found it out on Could You Survive on the Breadline have been shocked. No, no. He says he he doesn't want to open himself up to being spied on by the Chinese government. Yeah, and I was like, as if they're not doing that on all the, all the rest of your phone anyway. Every app is spying on every other thing ever. Everyone's spying on everyone. I just, I use my phone knowing that is the case. I'm like, curate the internet for me. Good, I don't have the time. Like, just put things in front of me that I want to see. That works for me. I like that. But, yeah, no, he won't, which is really annoying because whenever he wants to open a TikTok, he sends me the link and asks me to open it on my TikTok so then he can come and look at it on my phone, (laughs) which drives me insane. Um, Yeah, so well done, Caleb, was actually um, almost as if he was his real 
22 years of age for the first time in his life. Um, okay, next bit of breaking news is I watched Knit Ram. It is really good. It just came out on Stan over the weekend. Um, it's the new film, which is it's Martin spelled backwards, and it's the new film about Martin Bryant, who was the man who um, uh, did the um, Port Arthur massacre here in Australia. Um and it is just phenomenally good. It's long. It's really long. But it is, like, just completely gripping in the way it shows you how um, evil and messed up he was and what his life was. Like, it does not show the the day, like, the the actual event. It's just about his life in the lead-up to that day and Judy Davis in my opinion steals the film playing his mother it is one of the best pieces of acting I've ever seen Anthony LaPaglia plays his dad and um Essie Davis plays like this weird woman that he like met and lived in her house and then Caleb Landry who plays him is just good there's a lot of people who I who I've read have had a problem with them making the film at all but I think when you watch it you'll see I think there's value to it. And another thing that blew my mind um, is in the end of the film, they kind of um, cut to a a few little, like, postscripts at the end, and it talks about how, you know, after that day Australia had what has become, you know, our very famous gun buyback scheme where we had one mass shooting and we were like, that's it, get all the guns off the streets and it took 12 days for the government to put through laws um, to get, like, handguns and gun ownership limited and the government actually bought people's guns back off them to encourage them to return their guns. But what I didn't know is that since then they've slowly been chipping away at the laws they enacted and now there are now more guns in private ownership in Australia than there were on the day that he did that shooting. Yeah. And Australians are always so arrogant and like on their high horse about how we changed our gun laws and and we did. And it's like, I don't think any of us actually know that the government has chipped away at those laws since that happened. It's just been very quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. At Khan, yeah. Yeah, it came out over the weekend um, on Stan and it's just very good. And what's interesting is they don't mention the name Martin Bryant throughout the entire thing. He's referred to as Nitram, which they kind of allude to was um, a nickname kids gave to tease him in school and then just stuck. So everyone in the town kind of calls him that. But no one in the film ever once says his name or, yeah. And they don't even put it in the, like, in the end when they talk about that, they don't mention it. It's just his name is not mentioned. Um, And, yeah, they don't show it. They show him getting to Port Arthur, but then they, that's the end. But, oh, it's a very gripping movie. Like, I just was on the edge of my seat the whole time watching it. Yeah, I remember, like, because what was, it was 96, so I was in year five. So I was about, yeah, I was 10. Um, Yeah, I mean, I just remember uh, that it was, like, unlike anything we had ever seen and that the entire country was just outraged that he was able to buy guns And then I remember, like, how much of a big deal it was that, like, within less than two weeks, 
I mean, I was a kid, so in my mind, I was like, within less than two weeks, we had basically banned all guns. Like, that's how I remember it as a kid. What do you remember of it? Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah, see, I don't really remember these... I remember hearing that um, little girls had died, which I still know their names. It's Alana and Madeline because um, their father started the Alana and Madeline Foundation in their honour, which is now a big charity here in Australia. Um, yeah, but I remember just being shocked because I think as a little kid you just don't even think it's possible for children to die. Like you don't understand. And I was like, what? Children? Like, he shot children? Like, it just was really, yeah. So it was just still probably anybody who was alive then remembers it as our biggest still tragic event like that to date. I mean, even we had the Lint hostage situation, which was like a couple years ago. Um, Yeah, a guy held it hostage and a few people were shot and killed, but um, that's been the only one since. Like, so we don't really have anything else to, like, compare it to, really. Not on that scale, no. But, um, yeah, I would, if if you're interested in watching it, I would very much recommend it. Even And if you're on the fence, I would still recommend it because it is, yeah, really very good. And the other thing I want to talk about is yesterday I watched um, What Happened, Brittany Murphy. Ah, ah, it's so good. So this is a documentary about Brittany Murphy's career and her very mysterious um, death, which is on Binge. It's a two-part documentary. And they just look into what the hell happened. And there's some big names in it, like Amy Heckling, the writer and director of Clueless, sits down. Um, Kathy Najimi, who was a very good friend of hers, sits down and chats with the cameras. Um, it, it really is a testament to just how loved she was in the industry, the big names who agreed to be in this, like what could have just been a very tabloidy documentary. All these people really wanted to sit down and talk about it and it seemed like across the board they all agreed to sit down and talk about it because they all thought that her husband was the reason she ended up dead. Not that he killed her, but that he was a very a leech, a leech and an abusive kind of weird man who just stuck his tentacles into her, completely changed her, cut her off from everyone in her life, and then it appeared that she got incredibly unwell and he just was so narcissistic that he didn't care enough to to get her help and take her to the hospital, and then she died. It seems like that's kind of like what happened, do you think? Yeah. No. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Like it's yeah, it seemed like she definitely really sadly had a prescription drug problem towards the end of her life and he wanted her to be on drugs because he could control her that way so he wouldn't get her help. And then she just was really sick, which what they later found out in the autopsy was pneumonia. And even the medical examiner who performed the autopsy was like, the state of her lungs was so bad that I find it impossible to believe that any family member, she would have been sick for weeks. Like, how could they not have taken her to the, like, this was someone who died 
of something that was very easily preventable if someone who cared about them had just taken them to the doctor. No, she did. He he at first didn't want her to, but then they were like, sorry, we have to. <laughs> so, yeah, no, they, yeah, she had an autopsy, yeah. Yeah. I know, yeah, that was icky. They went and found his mother and his brother and they were both just like, he loved her, he loved her so much. I mean, he loved her, he really loved her. And it's like, no, he sucked. And also that he had that whole, when they interviewed that woman that he'd had a kid with and, like, he was just a charlatan, a charlatan scammer. And what sucks is if she had lived, eventually that would have come out. Like, and it would have just been a dodgy relationship that she was in and lucky enough to escape. But then she didn't. It's really worth watching. I thought it was going to be cheesy and tabloidy, but... It's not like they it's it seems so many people really loved her and really wanted to get on the record and say this was just so unjust and shitty and it shouldn't have happened. Yeah, well, I mean, like they said, you know, she was doing these big films. She was a great character actress. And then he came along and he was, like, so stuck to her and she was, you know, he had her on drugs and she was out of it. She started getting fired from jobs. And before she died, like, the last movie she did was some straight-to-video horror thing. And it's just she was so much better than that. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. Really, really good. So, highly recorded. Um, that was breaking news. Okay. Okay, I'm excited for this. In 1995, a very well dressed man was walking through the entrance of his very stylish office building in Milan when he was suddenly shot three times in the chest and once in the head. As he lay dead in the arms of the doorman, whoever shot him disappeared onto the streets of Milan, beginning a years-long effort to solve his murder since this man had so many enemies it was difficult to pinpoint just one person who would want him dead. Today I am giving you just the gist of the Gucci family. Otherwise known as the story depicted in the upcoming film House of Gucci or the film I've renamed Father, son, house of Gucci. <laughs> yes. I did. I Yes. So I have, I, well, I listened to the audio book, which is a slog because um, it's about 22 hours long, um, but I couldn't stop listening to it. It was one of those audio books that I actually kept wanting to clean because then it would give me an excuse to just listen. Um, House of Gucci, the Ridley Scott film, came out in the US on the 24th on Thanksgiving. Um, it doesn't come out here till New Year's Day, which people in other countries, I wish you would understand how annoying that is for us. We always have to wait for movies. But because it came out in the US um, and Europe, everyone's been talking about it online. And um, reviews are mixed. <laughs> Some people are saying that it is just like a total, like it's going to win the Razzie for worst film of the year. Like it is just like soap opera-esque, not like over the top nonsense. But other people are saying that was the idea and it's like a wink at the camera. And I was reading an interview with the director who said, um, we didn't want it to feel like it was reality. Like we wanted it to feel like a, um, like a family dynasty like drama. So I mean, um, yeah, reviews are mixed. But the one thing everybody's saying is that Lady Gaga's performance is amazing. Although her accent seems to 
vary from Italian to Russian. So, (laughs) but I mean, you know what? Of the thing, yeah. Apparently that's the whole point of it. But I mean, there could just be a very smart publicist who like smelt the, the, you know, whatever in the air and was like, let's say it was intentional. So it might have might have been very much intended to be a serious film with serious performances and now they're just pivoting because everyone, like I've read reviews with people saying people were laughing in the audience, like hysterically. So anyway, um, the film, <laughs> the film is based on the actual story of the Gucci family who created the Gucci fashion line and um, I'm going to give you just the gist of that now. So, the Gucci fashion brand started as a small leather luggage goods company in Florence, Tuscany. Uh, It was founded by Guccio Gucci in, like, 1921, I think. I didn't even put the date in here. Oh, well done, Rosie. It's just the gist. (laughs) I think it was, like, 1920. Um, The whole family worked for the company, along with a bunch, like, including his wife and kids, along with a bunch of very skilled artisans, who made the products very popular. Um, In 1935, Mussolini, who was the fascist leader of Italy, he was being a bit of a dick. So um, trade restrictions um, meant that nobody in the world was allowed to send Italy a lot of stuff because they were trying to, like, get back at Mussolini. And so leather was banned from being imported to Italy. So this is when Gucci Gucci had to sort of get creative and start using materials and fabrics other than leather, like linen and wood and wicker. Um, and so that's when they started making handbags with the famous bamboo-shaped handle. Um, and that's when they came up with the technique of like tanning the Gucci logo onto their fabric bags and as well as the famous red and green rings. Like this is all stuff that they would never have had to have come up with if they didn't have to explore options other than leather luggage goods. Um, Gucci Gucci's three sons, Aldo, Vasco and Rodolfo, were all being raised to be leaders in the growing company, but particularly Aldo, who was the eldest. Um, it's all very succession-y, this story. It's all very much like who's who wants to be in charge and who's getting what. And, um, yeah, it's like a family just constantly playing chess with each other's minds. So each of the three sons have equal shares in the company and they all inherit Guccio's shares equally when he dies. So it's three sons who own Gucci equally. Um, Aldo is the one who convinces his father that they should branch out into handbags and then into other goods like shoes and keychains and wallets. He also convinces his father that they should explore moving into other countries because Guccio really wants to just stay in Italy, but he's getting older, so he's like, yeah, all right. He gives Aldo his blessing and Aldo takes the Gucci brand international, bebe. So they open stores in Paris, London and New York. The first global tagline for Gucci is quality is remembered long after price is forgotten, which is what I say to Caleb every time I buy any, like a new package arrives at the house, Um, (laughs) because I'm sure that applies to ASOS and Shein. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The um, famous Gucci loafer is launched in 1952 and by 1953 under Aldo's leadership, Gucci is a extremely famous luxury bags, shoes and accessories brand loved by the world's rich and elite, most famously at the time, Jackie Kennedy. They're so elite and exclusive that they don't really have to be desperate for customers. Customers are desperate for them. They very famously have this policy because it's a family company that every store they have in the world closes for family lunch for one hour every day. And so they often have they often have very rich and powerful, exasperated people knocking on the door at, during that hour who they refuse to let in until they're finished their family lunch hour. Um, In 1953, Guccio Gucci dies, leaving Aldo in charge of everything, but all three sons, Aldo, Vasco and Rodolfo, have equal ownership of the company. And under Aldo's leadership, the company continues to grow and grow and grow. But while this happens, the family also begins to fight and fight and fight and fight and fight a lot. So the problems begin 
when Vasco dies without any children in 1974. And this leaves Aldo and Rodolfo with 50% of the company each, like half of half each of the company, same amount. But here's where it gets very succession-y and people get like greedy and money just changes everything. Aldo and Rodolfo may own half each of the company, but Aldo has three children and Rodolfo only has one. So that means Aldo's half of the company will be inherited by three children and that half will have to be split between them. But Rodolfo's half of the company will go to his only child, which means that one child will get a whole half. So even though Aldo and Rodolfo are like a long way off dying, the kids are already thinking like well ahead, like well, that's unfair that Rodolfo's kid is going to get half of everything and we have to split our dad's half like between the three of us because our dad, Aldo, has run everything for years and Rodolfo's hardly done anything and that's like, that's bullshit. So they're really pissed off. I know. (laughs) So Rodolfo's son is Maurizio Gucci and it must be hard to be him because literally the whole family resents him before he's even done anything. Like, he's hated just for being born and not having any siblings. <laughs> yeah. So this is the kind of infighting and jealousy that he Maurizio grows up with. Like, just because he's born without any brothers and sisters, his very existence is considered a threat because one day he's going to own more of the company than the others. And also besides that, Maurizio's childhood is really sad. So he's born in 1948 to his dad, Rodolfo, and his mum, Sandra. But his mum dies when he's five years old. Um, And after that, his dad becomes incredibly unhealthily overprotective of him. Like he's barely allowed to leave the house without his dad. If he ever does, it's only for school and he has to come immediately home. He's expected to be at home for family dinner with his father every night, well into adulthood. Um, It's a pretty lonely childhood, particularly compared to his cousins. So Aldo's children, Giorgio, Paolo and and Roberto, all had each other. Plus they had Patricia, but um, she was from an affair and this is just the gist, so, like, forget Patricia. Um, (laughs) Like, she just doesn't really come into it because she's from another woman and and she herself is a woman, so she never really factors in and, yeah. Yeah. So as a result of being like a super lonely only child with no mother and a very overprotective and controlling father, Maurizio grows into a very timid young man who basically lives to do whatever his father tells him until he meets Patrizia Reggiani, which is Gaga. This is Gaga. Patrizia Reggiani. Adam Driver plays um, Maurizio. Um until he meets Patrizia Reggiani, which I'm trying to do Italian and Russian, <laughs> which is Kaka's accent. He meets her at a party in 1970 and falls just madly in love. She kind of looks like Elizabeth Taylor, but at like a bit of a drag version. Um, they're both 22, but they could not be more different in personality and background. So she grew up poor, the daughter, the only daughter of a waitress, until her mother met and married a millionaire trucking magnate when Patrizia was 12. He adopted her and treated her like a princess, but as people from old rich families like to say with a look of disgust on their face, they were new money. New money. Not part of Italian high society. Yes, so even though Patrizia's mum had married this rich dude, they were considered quite a tacky and desperate family. Um, And while they may have had money, they also didn't have like a Gucci amount of money. They just had like regular rich money. So Maurizio's father, Rodolfo, hated Patrizia immediately and just assumed that she was a tacky social climber. But Maurizio was smitten with her and she insisted later that it's because she was exciting and different, but it's also widely speculated now that she knew just how to control him like his father did. And he needed that in a partner because she, A, filled that mother-type role that he'd always wanted, but B, like she was loud and brash and social and confident, which is all things that he wasn't. Um, But also a lot of people say that that's kind of a sexist description of of their partnership because everyone kind of just likes to paint her as this woman who came in and like manipulated him and tried to take over and which, you know, 
normally I would agree with, but then she says things like this that doesn't quite help her cause. She was once quoted as saying, Maurizio is like a chair that molds into the shape of whatever person is sitting on it. <laughs> so, you know, we'll just, anyway. So against his father's wishes, he marries Patrizia two years after meeting and his father cuts him off for a while, but she's actually the one who encourages them to reconcile, which they do when the couple have their first child about a year later. And after reconciling, Rodolfo brings Maurizio back into the Gucci company and with Patrizia's encouragement, or what some say was pulling the strings, he becomes a lot more confident when it comes to speaking up about how he thinks the company should be run. And he also becomes a lot more confident about how he would like to be living his life, or as a lot of people say, the life Patrizia wants. They move to New York to run, to like help run the US side of Gucci things. Um, they live in a massive multi-million dollar penthouse. They become huge players on the social scene. They buy like a multi-million dollar yacht and have holiday homes all over the world. They're um, chauffeured everywhere around New York in a limo with the license plate Maurizia, which is his name and Patrizia. <laughs> Maurizia. <laughs> I guess they did, <laughs> which a lot of people said is very symbolic of what their relationship is like. Like they, it, you know, they are doing very much everything in a partnership. She plays a huge role in everything that he does in the business and in his life. Um, she helps Maurizio become, you know, a, a man with enough confidence to run things, which she says that's what she helped him do, whereas other people say she was just trying to turn him into a person she could control so she could run things. She calls herself the first lady of Gucci <laughs> and um, and she understood the gravity of the fact that Maurizio was going to inherit half of the company, whereas his three cousins were going to have to share their half between them. So she was looking to the future where she knew we're going to be the big players in this game. Um, and so she sort of starts making him act like he's going to be the leader one day and she starts encouraging him to move to take control, more control of the company. And things in the company did really need controlling at this point. So because Maurizio's cousins are so pissed off that their dad, Aldo, had been CEO for years, yet they were going to get less than Maurizio, they set up all these separate deals to use the Gucci names for other things so that they could make extra money. So this is when the Gucci logo gets licensed for things like watches and perfumes and all kinds of mainstream things that end up really cheapening the brand and making it kind of tacky. And so by the 1980s, Gucci had gone from being a brand so exclusive that they were literally making bespoke handbags for Jackie Kennedy to being the main bag sought out at like tacky counterfeit markets. It became just, I mean, you know what Gucci became, like just, yeah, every, yeah, gross. It was kind of like now the plebs were wearing Gucci. It was just no longer luxurious or exclusive. It was kind of oversaturated and and the the shine of the company had disappeared. Um, well, yeah, I mean, whatever that was in the 80s, yes, that's kind of what it had become at this point, yeah. Um, like, Aldo's sons had basically tried to grow the, the brand so that they would have more money and more ownership than Rodolfo's son, but in growing it, they'd kind of ruined it, yeah. Um, so all of this comes to a head in 1983 when Rodolfo, Maurizio's dad, dies. So Maurizio finally inherits his massive 50% stake in the company. Um, this is also 10 years into his marriage with Patrizia, and she's like, yes, finally we are in charge. Why do I do her like Arnold Schwarzenegger? I can't, I can't. Yes, finally we are in charge. I can't. What now was Indian? What am I doing? Yes, finally we are in, we are in charge. I don't know. Anyway, she's psyched. You, you were about to do it. Do it. Our, yes, our name, sweet pea. Um, but in trying to build up Maurizio's ego over the last decade, she had created a little bit of a monster. 
And as soon as his dad died, for the first time in his life, he felt free of what had been a massively controlling presence over him. And he decided, well, I want to be free of Patrizia as well. So one day he says he's going on a work trip. He says goodbye to her and their two young daughters and just never comes back. And in what proves that he actually was still scared of her, he sent a friend to tell her, oh, by the way, Maurizio is breaking up with you. Bye. (laughs) So he just leaves. He just goes live somewhere else and tells her he wants a separation. Yeah. So she had spent years moulding this timid man into what she wanted so that when he inherited his half of the Gucci company, they could run it together. And then he inherits his half of the Gucci company and dumps her. So a lot of people say this is just another case of a man getting what he wants out of a woman and then tossing her aside like she's dispensable. But others say he was just sick of being controlled of his wife. Um, Yeah, which is what, you know, I think too. See, I'm not always like, why are men? In this case, I think, why are women? It sounds like she was a bloody nightmare. Um, Either way, he starts making moves in the company that are not great. He um, has really good ideas, but like a lot of other kids or grandkids um, from rich, you know, heiress, air, air, airful type families, He's dynasties. He's just not a good businessman because he's just grown up with everything and he's never had to really learn how to do anything. Um, And there's a lot of complicated family infighting at this point with him getting his his massive stake and the others getting annoyed. But I won't go into the details because this is just the gist. But basically everyone in the family is angry at everyone else in the family at some point at this time. Like everyone is just fighting a lot, desperate to you know, get their cut of power, their stake of Gucci, the the one to come out on top. And I know it's horrible. It really is like succession. It's just like, it's not family. It's just business and infighting and a constant power game, a constant power struggle. Yeah. Yeah. So in order to try and take over... Maurizio dobs his uncle Aldo in for tax evasion and he is sent to prison aged 81. That's how ruthless Maurizio is. And so that really pisses off Aldo's sons, his cousins, but what pisses them off even more is that Maurizio tries to put a stop to all the tacky watch and perfume and sunglasses like deals that they've made to use the Gucci logo um, that was like bringing in a lot of money for them, but that Maurizio felt was cheapening the brand in the long run. So they're really pissed off that he's trying to like cut off all their revenue streams. Um, his plan is to bring Gucci back to its old glory days as a luxury brand, but he does only own 50%. So he does um, like what he thinks is the best thing. And he goes and finds a big Saudi Arabian investment firm to help buy out all the other Gucci family members of their shares. So he has complete control of the company. And um, Aldo agrees straight away because he's, you know, but at this point in his 80s, he just got out of prison where Maurizio had bloody sent him. (laughs) And he's like, that's it. You know what? I'm selling you my part of the company and I'm just going to retire with gazillions of dollars you win. I'm out. Um, Patrizia claimed during this time, Maurizio got crazy. Until then, I was his chief advisor about all Gucci matters, but he wanted to be the best and he stopped listening to me. So Maurizio, at this point, has cut off his wife. He's ousted every remaining Gucci family member from the business because his cousins end up selling their shares as well because they're just like, fine, Maurizio, you effing win, like get lost. And he has now put everything on the line by going into business with a massive Saudi investment company. And he does have good ideas. Like the investment company thing was actually quite a revolutionary um idea and it was the first fashion company that ever partnered with a massive investment investment firm to grow their company and now you wouldn't find a fashion company that doesn't have a huge investment firm behind them like so that was a pretty good idea um he also was the one who brought in Tom Ford to be the creative director of Gucci 
which is kind of what started getting Gucci back on the map as a luxury fashion brand. And that remains one of the most iconic fashion pairings in history, Tom Ford for Gucci. Um, So he does have good ideas, but he's just not a very good businessman. He's spending way too much money. He doesn't, like, he's just someone who's playing business but doesn't get it. And literally within a few years of making that deal with the big investment firm, Gucci is hemorrhaging money and the Saudis are just like, yeah, we're getting rid of you because, like, you're we gave you all this money, but we expect to get money back and you're losing money. So in 1993, the investment firm buys out Maurizio of his remaining stake in Gucci for $170 million and they kick him out of the company. So just a few years after getting everyone else kicked out so he could be in charge, he loses the Gucci family company that has been held under Gucci leadership for almost 100 years. So for the first time ever, there is no Gucci family member part of the Gucci company. Well, yes. My next line here is, and not speaking super well of Gucci family members, the company thrives. (laughs) So you're correct. Yeah, I mean, in the um, book, uh, The House of Gucci, um, which I'll put in the show notes, it's such a good audio book. Uh, they talk, they interview Tom Ford like a lot for it. And he just talks about how it was, it, it, it was a shock when it happened, but it was such a relief because it was just like, there's no more of this bizarre family infighting and drama. We can just be a fashion brand and a fashion house and just do the work now without all of that. So, yeah, I guess. Well, not Maurizio. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So throughout all of this, Patrizia Gucci is furious because not only did she build up this man to be a leader only to have him dump her, She then had to watch helplessly as he lost his family's legacy because he was such a dummy. Like, she's convinced that she would have done it properly. She wouldn't have let this happen. Um, She thinks, like, she's more of a Gucci than he ever was if he was so willing to just throw it all away. So Maurizio starts dating this new woman, and he's living in Italy with her. He has 170 million bucks, so he's kind of just, like, trying to decide what new business case he wants to work on. Like he's just, I know he's just not. So he's like after years of separation officially asks for divorce from Patrizia at this time. And in the settlement, she gets the home she lives in with her daughters, but it's not owned by her. It will go to her daughters when they are old enough. She gets an annual alimony of $1.5 million, which she calls a mere ball of lentils. And also, in one of her most famous quotes, she says, I'd rather be sad in a Rolls Royce than happy on a bicycle. (laughs) She's the best. But what pisses her off the most is that in the divorce settlement, it's ruled that she can no longer legally refer to herself as a Gucci. And that prestige was extremely important to her. Plus, like she says, I'm the most Gucci of them all. So she officially goes back to being Patrizia Reggiani, but she still refers to herself as Patrizia Gucci, the first lady of Gucci. So he had ousted his entire family from the company, stopped them from making millions of dollars from tacky watches, sent his 81-year-old uncle to jail, really pissed off the ex-wife who believes that she made him what he was, then lost the company at the end of it all, And it's in the middle of all of that that Maurizio walks to his office building one morning in 1995 and is shot dead by a hitman. So while it took two years for the police to figure it out because so many people had a motive at the time, this is just the gist, so I'm going to tell you right now, Patrizia did it. (laughs) Yeah, and she would have almost got away with it too if it weren't for some pesky accomplices showing off in a bar. So 
Immediately after the death, you know, it's huge international news. The funeral is extravagant and star-studded and Patrizia is, of course, front and centre weeping with her daughters. There's lots of speculation over who would have hired a hitman to kill Maurizio, but everyone immediately thinks it's Patrizia. And that's not helped by the fact that she had been super open about how pissed off she was about the divorce also not helped by the fact that just two hours after Maurizio was shot dead, she had an eviction notice sent to his girlfriend in the mansion they shared in Italy, and she moved in with her daughters the next day. (laughs) Plus, various people came forward saying that in the months before the death, Patrizia had been asking around about how she could hire someone to kill Maurizio. But the police couldn't actually prove it. Like, there was no proof because all the people she'd asked had kind of said, I just told her, like, no, I don't know. And by the way, probably stop asking people that. Like, (laughs) so it was literally two years. She's living in this mansion that she booted the girlfriend out of two hours after he died. And one night... After two years, a guy's in a bar showing off about the fact that he had helped hire the hitman who killed Maurizio Gucci, just getting pissed, telling everyone that he was part of the plot. And so the owner of the bar calls the police and everything pretty quickly falls apart from there. So it turns out Patrizia, oh, you're going to love this, had asked her astrologist (laughs) if she knew how to hire a hitman And the astrologist was like, yeah, probably. So she asked one of her dodgy friends and he asks a bunch of his friends until he just finds someone who's like, oh, yeah, I'll do that if she pays me. So it wasn't really like a high-end operation. Um, Everyone, I can do the Adele interview. Every And then keep my mouth shut idiot. Um, Because basically this whole thing would have fallen apart. It would never have been solved if that guy hadn't been showing off in a bar. But anyway, so um, everyone involved is arrested and they all start talking immediately to save themselves. Patrizia is arrested at 4am and refuses to leave the house until she puts on her fur fur coat and all of her jewellery. And she's furious when they make her take it off for the mug shot. (laughs) She goes on trial and her defence is that, yes, she did ask around about getting Maurizio killed, but that's because she had had brain surgery for a benign tumour that year that had made her act crazy, but she didn't actually do it. So the, like, her defence was basically like, I'm not guilty, my brain is guilty. <laughs> um, but... Of course, the court is kind of like, lol, no, sorry, Patrizia. So everyone involved is found guilty, including the astrologist, the astrologist's friend who went and looked for a hitman, the hitman. It was the astrologist's friend, by the way, who was the one showing off in a bar. Um, And um, what probably also didn't help uh, Patrizia is that she also had bank statements showing where the payments had gone to the hitman, Plus, the week before Maurizio's murder, in her diary, she had written one word, vendetta. And then on the day of his murder, she had written another word, paradisos, which is Greek for paradise. So in 1998, Patrizia Gucci, or as she's officially known, Reggiani, is sentenced to 29 years in prison. She goes on to serve 16. She could have got out much earlier on parole if she agreed to a work release, but she refused, saying, I've never worked a day in my life. I'm not going to start now. (laughs) She was, though, just because parole, you know, demanded it, released in 2014 after an Italian jewellery company who most people think just wanted the publicity agreed to hire her on work release as a design consultant. Um, The first thing she did when she got out of prison was go shopping on Milan's main street dressed in fur and jewellery with a parrot on her shoulder. (laughs) 
Um, on her first week going to work at this jewelry store where, um, apparently she just, um, read through fashion magazines all day and occasionally told them what the trends were. (laughs) A reporter asked her why she had hired someone to kill Maurizio. If she hated him so much, why didn't she do it herself? And she replied, my eyesight is not so good, darling. I didn't want to miss. (laughs) She's just leaning in at this point. She's leaning into it. Um, there's an amazing Guardian interview with her that came out in 2016 by a journalist called Abigail Hayworth. She, um, uh, it was difficult for her to get access to Patrizia at first because when she first got out of prison and was saying all these ridiculous things to the cameras, the jewelry house she was working for got like a lot of what they thought was going to be excellent publicity turned into bad publicity. Like, how are you letting her work for you? And how are you doing this? And they did have one fashion show where they released a line of jewellery that had been designed, inspired by Patrizia's parrot, but Gucci held a fashion show on the same day. So kind of just completely drowned out any positive publicity they might have got for it. Um, but this journalist, Abigail Hayworth, does manage to get access to Patrizia in 2016 and she talked about how she has been living with her 89-year-old mother in a small flat and she was really pissed off that she had to wear Zara because the jewellery company wasn't paying her enough to buy proper clothes. Um, and I haven't been able to find much news about her recently except, you know, there's a quote been going around from her that... Um, Uh, she's really annoyed that Lady Gaga didn't get in touch with her to talk to her about playing her in a film. She said she found that really disrespectful. So other than that quote, I I can't really find anything about her most recent whereabouts except this 2016 interview when she was living with her mother and working for this jewellery company just flipping through magazines all day. Um, But This is the last little portion of the Guardian interview from 2016 that I want to read to you, which is, I mean, I guess you kind of feel like she does get what she deserves in the end. Um, Reggiani's daughters, Alessandra and Allegra, who were 18 and 14 when she was arrested, are both married now and live in Switzerland. Unimaginably rich, thanks to their father's estate, they haven't visited Reggiani much since her release. It's almost the stuff of Greek tragedy. We are going through a bad time now, says Reggiani. They don't understand me and have cut off my financial support. I have nothing, not even, I have not even met my two grandsons. She says she has no idea what the future holds for her when her parole ends, possibly in a few months. She may continue to work at Bozart, that's the jewelry company, um, and says she'd like to travel when she's allowed to leave the country again. She seems to have given up on the idea of trying to find a job at Gucci. (laughs) Even if she hasn't quite let go of the past, if I could see Maurizio again, I would tell him that I love him because he is the person who has mattered most to me in my life. I ask her what she thinks he'd say to her in reply and she sounds a note of realism at last. I think he'd say the feeling wasn't mutual. (laughs) And that was just the gist of the Gucci family. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which kind of just really becomes just the jits of Pratizia Reggiani, first lady of Gucci, father, son, house of Gucci. I know. <laughs> well, that's what the director said. The, like when I read, the director and the writer were just like, it's it, it couldn't not be. It is so fantastical that it kind of just, it had to be camp. It was a choice, apparently. And um, Tom Ford, who obviously was a huge part of this, like, company and part of the family, knew all the players back in the day and is also an award-winning film director and writer. Like, he directed and wrote um, A Single Man and Nocturnal Animals. He went and watched it and did a review of it on the weekend and he kind of was like it was really funny but I think maybe it was meant to be like and he just said um 
He thought Gaga's performance was amazing, even though she didn't quite nail her accent. But he was really scathing about, um, uh, what's his name? No, 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 not Adam Driver. Um, the other two, Jared Leto and um, Al Pacino. He said that they were just, um, Al Pacino plays um, Aldo and uh, his, and Jared plays one of his sons, Paolo or whatever. I don't know. Um, I tried to leave names out of this because there's just so many people and I was giving you just the gist. But um, yeah, he said that the two of them just took the camp note and he said whenever they were on screen, it's like they were trying to out-circus each other and just outdo each other and be the centre of attention. And Jared Leto's never going to outdo Al Pacino. So it was always just like this unfair fight between these two caricatures. And then Adam and Lady Gaga would kind of pop up and do some really decent, like normal acting. But it just, it said it just, he said it was kind of just ridiculous. Yeah. And also he said it was strange watching it as someone who was there and lived as part of it all. Like he said he can understand why people will be upset. People in the family will be upset by it, but um, they've kind of separated it from reality so much that it's almost, it's, it's almost like it has nothing to do with what the real story, like it's just so campy and outrageous. Mm. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I know because there are often stories like this, like the story of Betty Broderick, who was the woman who ended up killing her husband after he dumped her for a much younger model. And when you go through that story, you realise that she really was a woman who was just unfairly treated and tossed aside by a man who cared very little for her. And in that one, you're like, yes, like, get it, girl, like, get what you deserve. But in this one, you're like, no, I think it's why, uh, well, why is this one woman? <laughs> like, it's, you know, she just is. And, but I mean, they have asked Lady Gaga, like, why, why didn't you talk to her? Like, she's she said she's pissed off and Lady Gaga said look like she she likes that she did it she glorifies this murder as something to be proud of and I don't really want any part in that like she Lady Gaga basically said like I played this role as like you know a woman who truly believes like she she deserves what she is owed but I I don't want to go and talk to someone who orchestrated the murder of an innocent person <laughs> So that's why I didn't go and talk to her. Yeah, very fair. So, but there was one interview where she had a very clunky answer. It was on a red carpet, so I guess, it, you know, she wasn't expecting it. But the um, journalist asked her, like, how do you feel about playing a role that glorifies a murder? And she said, um, she said, I don't want to um, glorify murder. I do want to glorify female empowerment. And it was like, oh, oh, Gaga, no, bad answer. <laughs> backpedal, backpedal. That's which I think in subsequent interviews she has, she's been like, no, it's wrong. I don't. But um, I'm not sure what happened with her daughters because I do know that one, they believed her and they truly thought it was this brain tumor and that she hadn't done it and. And one of her daughters even went to law school because she wanted to study law to get her mother out of prison. Like, but then at some point, I guess when she started talking about, you know, how she did it, <laughs> they, at some point, that relationship severed. And they're both off now just being very rich in rich people world. Yeah. And I just, I don't think a lot of people know, like when I, when you see the trailer for House of Gucci, you have no idea that it, it's a, all, it all culminates in, in a murder. Like, cause I don't, I, I don't remember this happening in the news at all. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, I, I had no idea until I listened to the audiobook that a huge part of this story ends really tragically with a hitman shooting the guy. Mm. 
Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's in the news. It's not, <laughs> it's based on a true story. So the story has happened. So like, you know, but um, yeah, far out. It's bloody fact is stranger than fiction a lot of the time. Mm. You're so welcome. Oh, New Year's Day. New Year's Day, we've got to go see it. I hate that we have to wait for movies. Yeah, I want it now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which trailers have come out for? And it looks so good. Oh, and also, um, if you're doing your Christmas shopping, just wait a hot sec because Just the GIF Live show is happening early next year and tickets are going on sale before Christmas, um, but just not yet. So, you know, just keep that on your list. And, oh, my God, we're so excited. There are some major, how do I describe it, um, extremely obnoxious um, performance embellishments. Just imagine what two uh, drama school dropouts who are now on a podcast would do when they get told they can have an hour and a half on stage to themselves with an audience. <laughs> we're, we're, um, we're not taking that stage time for granted, let me tell you. You're getting bang for your buck. Um, anyway, okay. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Bye. Yeah.